Hello, I'm Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, a veterinary surgeon from the UK, and this is the Underdog Vet Podcast. In each series, I'll bring you the Animal Advocate interviews, where you can join me as I chat to some truly inspiring people who have dedicated their lives to improving the health and welfare of animals around the world. Guests include a variety of people, including vets, campaigners, and those who have founded or work for animal charities. But one thing they all have in common with you and I is that they're passionate animal advocates. Feel free to hit the subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Details on how you can get in touch are at the end of this episode. And I hope you enjoy this latest instalment. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Underdog Vet Podcast. In this episode's Animal Advocate interview, I chatted with Olivia Walter, a conservation biologist and the executive director of Wildlife Vets International. WVI is a British charity which has been providing critical veterinary support to international wildlife and conservation projects since 2004. There's a vital medical aspect to conservation, which is all too often forgotten. And so WVI sponsor top veterinary specialists to help conservationists and local vets work to save endangered species worldwide. Olivia and I talked about why some species are in real danger of becoming extinct and how WVI vets are helping to save them. We also discussed the wider difficulties of wildlife conservation and why humans are both the problem and the solution. And Olivia told me about the time she accompanied an anti-poaching patrol in Sumatra where WVI vets are working to save tigers. She experienced firsthand the very real threats to their survival. So, Olivia, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come onto the podcast. I really appreciate you giving up your time to come and talk to me. It's fantastic you're doing this for us. I thought to start by asking you exactly what is your role, who are you, and what do you do? I am the executive director of a small charity called Wildlife Vets International. I say we're small, we very uh, work in a number of countries and we provide the veterinary expertise to conservation projects, but not in terms of um, actual boots on the ground. It's much more about training the, the staff within the conservation organisations and they can be field biologists and they could be um, veterinary professionals who just don't have the areas of, of wildlife medicine that you know they haven't practice that it is very unusual we, we tend to teach it a bit in the west but not really more and more so but certainly in other countries very unlikely to have been taught any wildlife medicine whatsoever um, disease is an increasing threat to conservation of endangered species and to even get the conservationists to think about wildlife medicine is a um, is a big part of what we do and bring it into their day-to-day lives and then get these organ help these organizations to employ vets and to train them up in the skills and knowledge that they need and just support them so we work with um, organizations for long periods of time building up their capacity within their organizations so it's not a case of you going into the vet schools and teaching sort of the vet students it's more a case of you work with organizations that are 
already working with wildlife in a conservation capacity and then you obviously bring the veterinary side into that with your vets trying to train their vets on on well all sorts you work with all sorts of species don't you actually all, all the exciting yeah. stuff actually uh, so uh, the two founders that set it up um andrew greenwood and john lewis one andrew is a a marine mammal reptile and avian specialist so even within his expertise it's quite far-reaching and he likes to work in nice tropical islands like the Seychelles and Mauritius and Puerto Rico and nice, comfortable places to go. Wait, where, who, uh, who doesn't want to work there? And have you got any vacancies? <laughs> well, John Lewis didn't want to work there. He chose to go and work with tigers and, and leopards in the Russian Far East, where it goes down to minus 20 um, in the autumn time when he went out there and um, and in the jungles of Sumatra where there's loads of bitey insects and uh, and really foresty areas where there's it's not very pleasant so you do it is horses for courses and it was quite nice to work with initially two vets that were so completely different in what they liked doing so we do everything from one end of the scale to the other but it's all about disease surveillance and then um, how to flag up to, to find out what diseases are there. Nobody knew, we have a lot more knowledge now, but what normal was, what, when, what was normal for a tiger? We could collect samples from tigers in zoos and we have quite a good collection of samples and um, an idea of what normal for a zoo tiger is and how does that relate to a wild, a tiger in the Russian Far East or in Sumatra? The Sumatran tigers turn out to be very different from the rest of their counterparts on on the mainland as it were and then for the down to the kind of the echo parakeets that that were so endangered they went down to 12 individuals and Andrew was part of the um, or advising the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation in how they can rear double clutch and rear parakeets using the knowledge that he had from captive parrots working with captive parrots and that's been a hugely successful program so it's gone they've gone from 12 in the 1970s sort of to a stable population of six or seven hundred today that's amazing and and you said there you touched on the overlap you're talking about both wild species and and or populations but also captive populations so we're learning and I assume there's a information flow in both directions is there from stuff we've learnt from having animals in captivity and then animals being studied in the wild and I'm assuming we can then get information from both that's helping both populations. Definitely yeah so there's um, a lot of the, the um, information that goes from the captive to the wild is so citizen beak and feather disease which is a fairly um, is seen a lot within domestic parrots or parrots in captivity rather, um, was crucial to the echo parakeet conservation. And then in the other direction, they are learning how the echo parakeets um, live in the wild and how they would eat. And they've been trialing different kinds of feeders to minimize the transfer of beak and feather disease because they're having to supplement feed the parakeets because the habitat is, is not um, completely there so that the there's a lot of invasive tree species and the native species have gone so there's not the right food source for the echo parakeets that's that's something that the conservationists are doing kind of in tandem as it were the echo parakeets are, are followed within an inch of their lives it's the most incredible data set they know every single echo parakeet and, and it's it's siblings and it's clutch mates and who its parents are and who its grandparents and go back to to the original 12 birds that they started with and they have a whole huge amount of behavioral 
data around that as well. And then that can come back into the captive populations and say, how can we improve the welfare of echo parakeets and other um, similar sized parrots in captivity to increase their welfare and their health? And it, it all goes round in circles. So there's a really nice overlap of information. And it's interesting that you said about, you know, these echo parakeets obviously originating from a very, very small handful of population left in the wild and talking about disease. Does that then have a knock on effect in terms of there's a term called genetic bottleneck um, where there's only a small pool of genes? And, and, you know, with 12 or 15 individuals, that's an incredibly small pool of wild genes that you've got to, to work from there. Have you noticed that that's caused a problem with diseases that you wouldn't have expected or, or anything like that? Or can you, you know, well, for want of a better word, I'll put it in layman's terms, mix and match with the wild and the captive genes? There is a, um, as populations get smaller and the, uh, you talked about a genetic bottleneck. So as the population gets smaller, they start losing quite a lot of their um, genetic pool. So you end up with this tiny pool and then if you expand it very quickly, then that, that's your bottleneck, isn't it? And you um, expand the number of animals and you, you can, while you can never regain the, the genes that you've lost through making this population very small, you're increasing the probability of mutations, which can um, increase the, the genetic diversity and then they become healthier. But as they're going down into this bottleneck and, and when they're there, they're breeding with each other and you get a lot of inbreeding, obviously, because they're all related to each other. And then you, that can have very deleterious effects on their health and you get deleterious genes being expressed much more often than you would do in a bigger population and it has a much more significant effect. So if you've got 12 birds and one of them has a genetic disorder from birth and it dies, you've got 11, about 8% of your population has just died. Just like that, it's, yeah, that's quite a significant amount. But if there were 400 of them and one died, you, it wouldn't really matter. You wouldn't notice it. It wouldn't have such a big effect. Um, and you get all these yeah, inbreeding deficiencies. So Dr. John Lewis went out to Russia originally to look at the Amor leopard, which of which there were only 30 left at the time when he went out there. And he was specifically looking and taking samples to look for these genetic disorders. Because we'd seen in captivity that the there were originally six purebred animals that came from amor leopards that came from Pyongyang Zoo originally and they were definitely interrelated and they did a, a genetic study on them and they their offspring all had strange things wrong with them so they had retained testicles they had one had really short legs they had gastric gastric problems um, they had uh, missing a toe um, you do tend to see these kinds of things coming up. But strangely, in the Amor leopard population, we never saw it. And it turns out 30 years, 20, 30 years later, that they were that population in Russia was contiguous with the population in China. But at the time, nobody could go into China to go and have a look because it was a very closed country. And they were jumping over the fence. So there were about, they think that there were about 70. And that was enough to keep that genetic pool open so we didn't see those, those deleterious effects whereas in the cheetah you see you see it quite regularly and if you do a skin graft from a cheetah in the south and you put it on a cheetah in the north of africa then they they take quite happily because they're effectively the same or exactly the same it varies on the species and which genes they've lost 
So you were talking about can we mix and match the captive and the, and the wild populations and with the um, Mauritius pink pigeon, which is another species in Mauritius that's gone down to a handful of animals. They, through stud book data and, and looking at genetic markers, they figured out that the European zoo population has got 6% of the genome that's not seen in the Mauritius wild population. So Jersey, I think, are, Durrell in Jersey are organising the movement of birds of pink pigeons over to Mauritius, which I don't think has happened because it was going to have to do it just before, before COVID broke out. And then obviously everything has gone to pot since then, but that they will still be going over. And they'll breed them with pigeon, pink pigeons that they've got in Mauritius and probably release the offspring. They do a soft release there. And I suppose this really is the whole concept now, or the modern concept of zoos and keeping animals in captivity you know whether you morally have issues with that or not we won't get bogged down with the ethics of it I suppose it's lucky for want of a better word that actually this is coming to fruition that we've got this genetic population in captivity because the wild populations have become so decimated that we now truly are having to delve into the captive population to save their wild cousins really and repopulate the wild almost from the captive populations. The irony is, is, is astounding. <laughs> I, had a, um, I had a meeting yesterday with um, WAPCA, the West African Primate Conservation, I never remember what A stands for. Um, the Punt Association. They are a Ghanaian organisation. They have a, a European branch that supports the Ghanaian organisation. Um, amazing, they're doing amazing work. So they're doing community um, livelihoods, They've organised um, the community protecting the forest, they're helping them do that, and the community are growing coconuts, palms, and that coconut oil is being sold as organic special oil. And we are we were discussing reintroducing white-naped mangabees, of which there were um, there are possibly a few in Cote d'Ivoire. There's a uh, there are a couple of hundreds maybe in Ghana, and that's it. And there is a but there is a healthy European zoo population. But you do they do come in through the trade and at Accra Zoo they WAPCA have a partnership with them and they've got a captive facility there to receive these primates and we're helping them train the vets up to do health checks on the primates as they come in but also once they have created a group that could be due for release we're training them up and giving them the, the knowledge but also the facilities well equipment I suppose to anaesthetize them properly and give them a good health check before they are released into this community lands and it was it's a really interesting there are lots of primate reintroduction projects every single one of them is unique you have to do boringly disease risk assessments which everyone yawns at but are so key to that part of the project and particularly with a primate when you are talking about diseases that people can pick up and that they can pick up they will have picked up from people when they were in the exposed to you know when they're in the trade and Ebola obviously been one sort of big um, flagship one but I don't think it's brought it hasn't come into Ghana yet so we should be okay with that one so it's really important that we do the disease risk assessment and that the health check is done um, and we can put them into this community forest. And then we were talking about different areas, which ones would be best to release them into. Um, there's a possibility of a, an oil refinery being built near one of them. So that would that area wasn't a very good place to go. Um, anyway, we've, we've hopefully next year, by the end of next year, we, or rather they, but with our help, will be able to release, be in a position to release 
the first ever group of these mangamis, and some of those were born in European zoos. You know, Ghana is a really important part of the European stud book, and they move animals between Ghana and the rest of Europe. And that would just be amazing. You touched on a couple of interesting things there, actually, that I'd like to delve into a bit more if we can. One was, obviously, I don't know if it's called rewilding, but captive to wild release. And secondly, that's great, obviously, and more of it should be happening. (laughs) But of course, you've got to have the habitat to release them into. I personally have always had a very strongly held opinion that, well, it's quite obvious, frankly, it's very straightforward, that, you know, a lot of international effort needs to be put in and, and finance into saving habitat because there is very, very little point in us having, you know, charities, organisations, money, zoos, keeping these animals in the genes going if there's going to be nowhere for us to actually put them in the end, to, to you know, no areas to, to rewild. And I know that's not the remit, obviously, of, um, of your charity, <laughs> well, but... You're absolutely right. So conservation is like a large puzzle. The wildlife medicine side of it is is one small bit of it, but they're all really important. And there's the political advocacy. And the thing that's lovely about the WAPCA project in Ghana is that the Ghanaian forestry department is, you know, normally they might just go, yeah, that's great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's the end of their thing. But they're really committed to it. And they really want to get personally involved. They were saying, yeah, if we need, if we, we would rather process the samples in country but if we don't have the facilities in country and we'll write CITES certificates for you because they're really difficult to move around samples from animals that are as rare as this and of course Um, that's what it takes it takes the you know the governments of these countries that, that are lucky enough to have these habitats within their borders to actually get on board and commit to this and see it as something that's really important and you know it's something they've done I think a lot in in Africa as well different various charities where you try and make not only the governments, but the communities aware of just how valuable, in all senses of the word, the wildlife that they have and the habitats they have within their borders are. And if they make the people aware, and the governments, then hopefully they'll actually invest, have an invested interest in it and start putting money in it and start supporting international charities and organisations and do that. Um, But of course, so much of a lack of commitment from governments it's difficult it is definitely and you get somebody in a really good place and then they they move on they get just as they get good they get promoted to a desk job um (laughs) which is very well it happens the world over doesn't it but you we were talking about getting the community involved so so andrew from wapka was saying that the the community forests are more secure than the national parks because the national parks just don't have the resources unless they are run by an organization a charity non-governmental organization they just don't have the resources to police the parks and to stop the poaching whereas a community you know they're they're around the forest themselves it's a fair size they've got a river on one side and there's a Cote d'Ivoire on the other side of the river and there's a community forest there as well and the all all of them are completely um, up for this because the monkeys can jump between the two areas so there are already mangabees there um, so it is supplementing it, supplementing their population to become viable. So there's a you need a, a certain number of animals in order to make a self-fulfilling population. So it's really, really exciting. But we then went to start talking about rollaway monkeys that are absolutely the most beautiful, beautiful primates and even more endangered. And there isn't a captive population for them. There are a couple here and there, old ones around the world, and that's about it. And they are so rare in the wild that you can't, it's very rare to find them. You find signs of them, you might hear them, but you don't 
they don't see them very often. They had this discussion in Mauritius, and, and at what stage do you catch up the last remaining animals and uh, bring them into captivity to breed them up and to manage them um, in captivity? An interesting discussion. Yeah, all the birds in Mauritius, so the Mauritius kestrel that went down to four, the echo parakeets and the pink pigeons and um, the white eyes and various other numbers. I think once they did the first one, which was the Mauritius kestrel, and that was successful, then everybody, the conservations were much happier about bringing in the captive elements of it. I was going to ask you what a conservation biologist does, but I think you've explained it quite well. They do everything. And as you said, conservation is a massive jigsaw and there are just small pieces of it and and yes the disease surveillance and the veterinary medicine they're all just small pieces and if you stand back and just look at the bigger jigsaw and all the pieces that you need to have in place it can be quite overwhelming actually and quite scary that you think my god there's so many pieces that have to be in place for this to actually work and for us to be successful to save these amazing species and on the bigger picture probably looks like you know your your charity is playing a very small role but actually it's a massive role in the lives of the species you're working with. And you're literally helping to stop some of them become extinct because you're trying to stop them getting diseases and you're doing surveillance for diseases. And, well, I guess thank you for all of humanity, really, for doing it. <laughs> it's wonderful We work. like to think we're very important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're dealing with disease, the success is that there's no disease outbreak. So it's very difficult to say, look, hooray, we've got no disease outbreak. That's, uh, that's amazing when you don't know that what's been um, knocking on the door. But that's the same with any kind of veterinary medicine, isn't it? So, so where do you get your funding from for this wonderful work that you're doing? We apply to grants and foundations. The zoo community have been an amazing support over the years, well, up until COVID, really, because there's such a natural synergy between the work that they do and, and the work in the wild. And it's quite often it's the zoo vets that are working in the, on the conservation projects as well. So that works very well. But we also have a, a growing number of corporate and individual supporters. We ran a photography competition last year and um, hopefully we'll do it this year. And really interestingly, photos that were submitted, we were expecting to have beautiful, amazing photos of incredible animals, which we, we did get. But what we got was this very interesting really interesting pictures of animals, e either conservation in action, or the stories behind the pictures were absolutely incredible. We called it the stories of survival because we were, we were after the stories behind that species and why are they threatened and um, or what the threats were. And we left it open, but it was, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. So the, the picture that won was of a leopard in India that, that, that was run over by a motorbike with three people on it. So they came around the corner and the photographer was waiting for this leopard to cross the road. You know, they'd seen it, they'd positioned themselves and they'd, I think he was on a, on a bit of a mission anyway. And it just happened that as the leopard crossed the road, this motorbike came around the corner and ran it over. You can barely see the leopard on the picture. You'll have to look it up. But it's incredible that this is a, a huge threat um, in India to, to leopards in particular, but also it happens to tigers and other big cats, is being run over um, and then going away, being injured, and then they can't catch their own prey. So they go and choose something that's a bit easier, like a cow or a sheep or a goat or a dog. If it's in the case of a leopard, they very much like to eat dog for some reason. And then you get these human wildlife conflicts, which is one of the biggest threats to 
conservation. So we went from this amazing picture, one which won, the judges are completely independent to us and they chose this as the winner. And then our campaign for our Christmas challenge last year was all about human big cat conflict. And then, da-da, there we go, that just personifies it perfectly. Got to ask, do we know the fate of the uh, leopards? Was it all right? It ran off um, and the people were all fine. Everybody was fine, but we don't know whether it ran off and then felt sorry for itself. One of the reasons why we're looking at human big cat conflicts is that we think that there is a disease element to the, not just the injuries, but there are diseases like canine distemper are changing the behaviour of the big cats and making them less afraid of people or they're genuinely sick and so they can't catch their own prey and, and come in for easier prey. It's a big problem in Nepal and India. In Russia, there was a paper that said 70% of the cats that they see in that come in for rehabilitation have been injured by some kind of man-made interaction with humans in some way or another. Yeah, sadly, I think... <laughs> If anyone talks, if, if you ask anyone what's the biggest problem, you know, for wildlife, most people would say humans. And, and I've always said, sadly, if there's any species that should become extinct on this planet, it is the Homo sapien <laughs> because it will do the world a massive it's service. And, and pretty much the rest, the, the whole of wildlife and biodiversity would probably recover quite well if there were no Homo sapiens on the planet anymore. They would too. But the nice thing about things like if we find out that um, canine distemper is being an issue with these leopards in Nepal, then we know that they get it from the domestic dogs. So we can create a vaccination programme, which in, you might as well vaccinate them for rabies while you're at it. And so that hugely improves the welfare of both those domestic dogs and in, in the case of rabies of the people as well and the leopards. Canine distemper is a bit difficult because it looks like it's residing in the mesocarnivore species. So the, the ferrets and the civets and the jackals and that kind of small sized carnivore and it jumps between the species and it will use the domestic dogs as well as part of that. So vaccinating the domestic dogs doesn't always really solve the problem, but it does create an opportunity to give back to the community in the name of of wildlife and build those relationships with the communities and find out what their other issues are because sometimes you know they're very anti a leopard they've got a leopard that's eating um in the pool they eat children as well and they go they'll go out and persecute seven leopards and still not find the right one so important to have those relationships now i wanted to move on and talk a bit about you you, you shadowed some anti-poaching patrols is that right in your time sounds dangerous but also exciting in equal measure i was very lucky to be able to go on a trek or, or shadow these anti-poaching patrols in Karinchi national park which is in sumatra we were going to go from east west it was 2015 so it was after all those huge fire well at the end of those massive fires when indonesia on fire and all those peat bogs were all on fire it was amazing because we just arrive out of the fog into this forest and in the non-forested areas it was very smoggy and in, in the forest areas where it felt anyway maybe it was just the canopy was so closed that the air was definitely cleaner and there was a, a natural effect going on there and we um there were 10 of us westerners all english actually and we shadowed we split between three teams three of the indonesian tiger patrol teams and we went off into the forest separately and then we arrived together at the end about seven or eight days later 
And it was one of the most hardest things I've ever done, mainly because the terrain is just ridiculous. I mean, I live in West Yorkshire where it, it is all very steep valleys. And so I was able to get quite a lot of experience in, in my legs going up and down and up and down and up and down. That was my training for it which was lucky because there are no paths in the middle of this national park. What you walk along are the trails that the animals make along the top of the ridges. And the Indonesians go along and they're fine. They're all smaller than us. And they're, they're carrying 25, 30 kilos of, of kit and food. We had to carry our own food. So we were carrying 15 to 20 kilos and begging them to eat our, you can eat our rice first, please, because I don't want to carry it any further. Um, and we'd make our own camps every night. So we learned how to uh, use saplings to, to cut down saplings. And then the younger trees, you can bend over, tie the saplings onto it, and then you put a huge sheets of um, plastic on top. And then you do the same on the bottom. And it's really important that you have the right size log at the front of the of the tent to stop the insects from coming in. We learned amazing kind of bushcraft. It was brilliant. So we all slept in the line with our feet pointing out, covered in smoke from the fires. Yeah, it was incredible eating rice and vegetables in a sort of soupy thing, three meals a day. And they would just go, right, we're packing up and we'd all be there rolling our whatever clothes up and our sleeping bags up and packing. Take us about an hour to pack up. And they're all sitting there, you know, after about 10 minutes, they're sitting there going, come on, God, these English people are so slow. And then they just yomp off and then they'd stop and we'd go, oh, God, thank God, take our rucksacks off. And they'd sit there, have a discussion about where they are, look at the map, how they knew where they were, no idea and then they have markers they put markers in the trees so they could see where they've been here before who has been here before and they they were seven of us so they put seven marks in the tree and then people's initials down the side and then as the women we were always at the bottom we didn't like that very much so we over the five days we managed to educate them enough so that we were at the top and the others were all at the bottom fantastic <laughs> wild lemon trees the the sadder side of side of it we saw elephant pit traps that look very much like the heffalump trap out of winnie the pooh same kind of idea but with stakes in the bottom and mm. they would were for the sumatran rhinos but oh. they hadn't had Sumatran rhinos there for 10 years and we then as we got further in towards the other and coming out towards the other side we did see begin to see old traps for tigers and we even came across a tapir carcass uh, a skeleton sorry not a very old one uh, that had been trapped by a snare the snare was still there around the tapir's neck vertebrae as it were it was I mean it was fascinating from to see a whole tapir skeleton and they went fishing rummaging around to go and find all the bits and pieces and we put it put it together which was you know very sad but also really amazing sort of opportunity and as we were coming out of the end, we started seeing fresher snares. And then we found one where they had caught a tiger, a snare that had caught a tiger. And you could see the mood of the team completely changed. And the Indonesians, you know, they mess around and joke around. And then suddenly they're like CID versions of them and really upset. They were really upset. And you, the, the, the air in this place was just absolutely tragic. And then they pointed out what had happened and they told us the story and they swept some leaves away and underneath was a ground where it had been completely cleared and you could see the groove marks of where the tiger had been scratching and up the tree 
where it was obviously a large male because it was, it was about six or seven feet up and then you could see the scratches down the tree it'd obviously been caught by a back leg because it had gone around various other trees as well trying to hug it almost and pull itself out of the trap and uh, you could see the bullet there was a bullet in the tree embedded in a tree obviously one that had missed and then you could see where they'd, they'd made a fire and they will have skinned it there and they would have boiled the bones to get as much meat off as possible. So just to make it lighter, taking all the, the bits and pieces that they wanted. And it just had the most horrendous, eerie, creepy feeling. And as we left it, you could feel that we were leaving it behind. But obviously all of us very disturbed by it. And the next day we started coming across very fresh um, traps that had been set that were live traps and we dug them out. They tie a, you have a, a noose of a wire, thick wire, and it is sits on top of a, a hole and on uh, top of the hole are three or four pieces of bamboo or some kind of slippery wood. And at one end, they're just touching a uh, the edge of the hole so the idea is that the tiger or the animal puts their foot in the hole, in the snare wire, it puts its weight on the bamboo twigs, they fall into the hole and then the wire is well and truly properly up the animal's leg. And then the other end of the wire will be either attached to a stake, a sort of four foot stake that they pushed into the ground, dug into the ground, or would be tied to another very strong tree somehow. And it's absolutely impossible for the animal to escape from, completely impossible. So we dismantled the first one and then we went on a bit further and we were dismantling the second one. And then we went on to the third one and the third one had been dismantled five minutes ago. So the poachers were obviously very much in the area and that was really creepy to be walking around when you know that the poachers are in the area and they're watching you. But it just was amazing to see the anti-poaching patrol at work doing what they do. And they are incredible guys. They don't get paid. They get paid nothing. The conservation organisations supplement their forestry commission salaries um, and employ extra additional sort of village team members. So, but they have to go with the forest guards, have the, the um, legislative they're allowed to arrest people and things like that, whereas the conservation organisation, Anti-Poaching Patrol, don't have those. But they're there for, for numbers and skills and they work together. It was an amazing trip, actually. It sounds it. And, and, and what's fueling the poaching to make these people do this? What, what's behind it? There was a, they told us that there was a, um, there's a, a bit of it is traditional. So there was a, a village of rhino and tiger poachers. That's what they do in that village. That's their job. It is about, it's about earning a living. It is about wanting the next mo bigger motorbike and a bigger TV screen. You know, it's, it's the usual kind of thing. I think that what had changed a few years before we get got there was that it's very expensive to buy this wire and then you have to buy enough food for two or three days to be in the forest completely independently um, and you might not catch a tiger or, you might, or anything else that's very useful to you and what had changed was that people from outside of Indonesia were coming in or bigwigs within Indonesia were coming in and they were paying the poachers for the wire they they'll pay them to do it so they'd give them a bit of a salary they'd pay their costs um so they wouldn't have to find those and that was much easier so they were able to go out into the forest much more frequently so these are the middlemen paying them to do this and then 
where are tiger parts and the rhino parts ending up? You know, what's the end market for, for this? Uh, China, basically, it's all heading the whole of the wildlife trade ends up in, in that direction. Um, and it's bones. And I think I've heard of people storing bones as a commodity, waiting for tigers to go extinct when they will then become much more expensive and more valuable. That's the one that makes me, you know, really creepy. It's like having gun gold gold bars in your in your safe. Instead of gold bars, you've got tiger bones because they might go extinct for when they go extinct and then they're worth an absolute fortune. I remember many years ago, you'll be probably very familiar with um, a great guy conservationist called Richard Leakey who, who worked out with uh, the Kenya wildlife um, people out, out in Kenya and uh, he was obviously trying to stop the anti-ivory poaching um, out in Kenya and and there was a big thing that that you might well remember and maybe people listening will remember as well which was all of the ivory that they've confiscated he made a big media thing about this and invited the international media and they essentially just set alight a massive pile of ivory just to it's very controversial isn't it it was very controversial and 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 i suppose i don't know really whether it had the effects that he was hoping it would have i suppose he was hoping it would prove to the end market uh, you know the purchasers that, that are fueling this excuse the pun uh, china of it doesn't ivory isn't worth anything it's it's nothing this we're willing to just burn this and and it's not worth coming here to do this because if we catch it we're just going to destroy it so it's not worth it. I'm not convinced um, that it's had the effects that he thought it would. I mean, great idea. It did um, temporarily, though. Um, and it was, what, four or five years ago when it started escalating again. And that's, there are always... So um, when China opened up, that was when he was around. And suddenly they were able to buy in, you know, talk to the rest of the world. And you suddenly realise that these huge decisions that seem so distant, like... Chinese people being able to swap currency, exchange currency to buy dollars that they can then buy ivory with, has the most enormous effect on the wildlife trade. Huge, absolutely incredible. So that that was when he was in. And then more recently, it has become a sort of akin with drugs running and arms running and not so much people trafficking, which I think is beginning to push it off its its pedestal, unfortunately. Yeah, it's absolutely massive, this trade in wildlife. I just don't understand, you know, I've, uh, just by luck of genetics in evolution, <laughs> humans have become the most, in inverted commas, intelligent creature on the planet. We've taken over. We're basically a parasite on the planet. <laughs> and we've, we've taken over it. And it just shocks me that the audacity and the ignorance of humans to think that everything else on the planet is there for us to use and abuse however we want, with no consequences. As a species, as it's what we're doing, and it's it's frightening. It's really scary that we're just decimating wildlife wherever it is, um, winning it in small areas. And I really think that um, there's a role to play for big organisations, but there are a lot of small local organisations that are doing huge amounts of work. So the ones that we work with are, tend to be the smaller organisations. And you really think, God, oh, they're really hard hitting, and they are very powerful and they're able to talk to to do it with the local community and increase everybody's welfare i think what we don't as a species what we don't understand is that we don't you know we can it's okay for us to knock down this patch of forest or to farm this uh, or catch all the fish in this particular river if there aren't that many of us 
and because that's what, how we've evolved evolved to be but it's just on the sheer it's just the sheer numbers and i watched david attenborough's program that he did in 20 was it autumn 2020 it came out his legacy and it just showed that in every single biome in every single part of the world just the sheer scale of what we're destroying is phenomenal but he did point out that we didn't mean to do it. You know, you think that everybody, you know, I, I drive down the hill to the co-op because I've forgotten some milk and you, and you don't think about the carbon emissions, although we do more so now, don't you? And you, we, we never used to normally think about those kinds of small things or turning one light bulb off. I mean, what difference does one light bulb make? But if six billion people do it, then it makes quite a big difference. In the last couple of years, the one thing that COVID has enabled us to do is to talk about these quite difficult issues. And before that, we were talking about plastics. And sadly, COVID has not helped on that front. But people are becoming much more about on the energy crisis and everything, aware of their own personal impacts on the, on the world. So yeah, and there's some brilliant, brilliant people around. And I think that's the important thing that you said, that if everyone can make little changes in their life, you know, people say, oh, God, what does it matter that I'm recycling my soup tins? Well, if everybody was to do it, it, it has a massive impact. It's an accumulative effect. And I think that's what people need to realise. And tiny choices that we can make every day where we make small, small changes in our lifestyles or our shopping habits. We've become such a throwaway society and there's inbuilt obsolescence. You said there's, you know, a role for big organisations. There's also a responsibility for big manufacturers and industries. Huge, in fact, you know, that this inbuilt obsolescence has almost fueled communities thing of, well, it doesn't matter. Just throw it away, get a new one. What? You know, how many times does Apple have to bring a new phone out? It makes the old one obsolete. Stop it. You know what you're going to put in it. Just do it now. Make it the best phone and you can be done. And then bring on out another one out in five years. The pound or dollar or yen is more important than the planet. We do um, think when we send equipment and cleaning materials and things like that out to a, a project with a vet, we do think quite carefully about whether, whether we can do it on reduced packaging, plastic packaging. And that we're not giving them a go running round in circles that where you want to do it properly but maybe a roll of suture uh, and individual <laughs> needles with a with a bucket of iodine solution. You know, is that maybe that's a better thing to provide them with than lovely individual packets of suture material? There is a huge amount of packaging waste in the veterinary medicine industry. Huge amount. Um, I know of a morning if I'm doing three or four operations and I'm getting pre-meds ready and the pile of paper and plastic next to me from opening syringes and needles is it, it just it scares me. But there's been a really big emphasis recently in the last year in the industry to start this, you know, recycling and becoming more green. So we do, you know, we take the paper portions off and we recycle them. Plastic we reuse for all sorts of weird and wonderful things you can imagine. So we do what we can. We use reusable drapes, you know, and re-sterilize. So there's things that we can do. And nitrous oxide now is being sort of faded out as well in the anesthetic side of things. So there's lots that can be done, but there's always more that you can do as well. But it does take, again, funding and commitment from the leaders, really, of any industry or profession for it to scale down. But yeah, that's probably a talk for another day. wanted to ask you about Chris Packham a few years ago, made a very controversial statement about saying that we should let wild giant pandas just die out because they're a lost cause. Discuss. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Right. Miles, pandas, 
yes, so you could say the manga, the, um, these fabulous rollaway monkeys that we were talking about. Yeah, huge amounts of resources go into saving species like the panda that are possibly um, um, evolutionarily extinct because they have such a ridiculous teeth structure and gut structure to eat bamboo and they therefore need to eat loads of it and they need large areas and there aren't those areas around in China anymore. I think the counter argument to that, that was his argument, wasn't it? That yes. that money could be spent, better spent conserving um, habitats or, or other species. I think that the, the money that you, people would give you money for pandas they wouldn't give you the same amount of money for the um, really rare dung beetle that's there or the salamander or uh, some bird, whatever kind of bird. So there is that part of it. And the other part of it is if you're conserving the pandas and its habitat, it's like a flagship species. So you are the panda has to have certain species of uh, bamboo that are there. So you have to have a particular makeup of it and it has to have, you know, a, quite a large size of it. And there'll be other animals that, and plant species that live in that habitat that you will be saving at the same time. That's a really unsexy, but very, very important. Yeah, no, it is. And, and that's the crux of biodiversity and ecosystems that you'll have a keystone species that is really important. And if you save that one, then the trickle down effect, you're saving all the others that kind of slot into the, the ecosystem. But without that main species, the, all the others wouldn't be there. But, it, but also you, you did touch on a good point about giant pandas are cute and cuddly and fluffy. And so people love yeah. that. And people, humans just don't want to give money to the ugly animals. That's insane in itself. There's a there's a program run by the Zoological Society of London called the Edge Program, which is about e evolutionary and genetically dis um, distinct animals. That's so they are you know the only representation of their kind of animals, uh, and they're endangered. And they tried to make them into. I mean, there are some very sexy animals with it, within it, but really cool animals, amazing animals. But it's never really taken off in the same way as the big five in africa or the giant panda or tigers or giraffes or whatever mm. yeah we're just predisposed to like black and white stripes and splodges you know somebody said to me once that people humans only think that an animal's cute if it's got eyelashes <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's true i mean think about it snakes. any of the reptile people will, or fish people would agree with you i yeah. can see that though. they're trying to find a common denominator amongst animals that people find cute so if there were vets listening who perhaps wanted to get involved with Wildlife Vets International, can they do that? Is there a way for them to get involved? They're more than welcome to write to me. So as I say, we, we support this partnership between expert vets and conservation projects. And we find the conservation project has a need and we find a vet who has that expertise and the time and is able to um, support the conservation project. So we are... We do look for very um, specific skills within the vets that we use. Um, it doesn't mean that preclude anybody from asking or even applying if they know of a project that is in need of some veterinary support and they would like to provide it, but they don't have the, the funds or the means to do it or need a bit of help, then we can also certainly help them through that. The vets that, that go out are guests of the conservation organisation, so we don't have a volunteer programme as, as such, but I get lot, asked lots, so I can, I've got lots of information about organisations that do um, supply veterinary uh, volunteer positions 
both for vets and for vet nurses actually you'd, you'd have to pay your way normally there's just so, no money in it um what would you say of all the projects that your your charity is involved in at the minute which one would you say is probably the most important and why oh that is a hard question which one is the most important so the big cats ones I love because that's I've always been involved with big cats conservation, particularly in Asia, in one way or another. And they are really important because they are these flagship species and that they can they need vast amounts of land. And there's a lot of people living in Asia and, and living together. I really like that. Because of the close proximity between the people and the wildlife, there are diseases that swap over, and that's really interesting. I really like our turtle program where we have a vet team a vet nurse and a Matthew Rendell and a, a marine animal vet Tanya Monreal who team up to support various small rehabilitation centers and they are really important because they're seeing the effects of plastic in our seas both through every single turtle that comes in has got to, has got plastic to some extent in its gut most of it is not really um, an issue as it goes straight through, the only issue would be the lack of uh, nutrients that that feed, as it were, is providing the turtle. We don't know about the poisons that have been carried through on the on the plastics, whether that's having an effect yet or not. But Tanya said that last season, so in the last year or so, the majority, nearly all of the turtles came in with some kind of um, injury from entanglement in mainly nets or fishing wire or plastic debris either being amputated at sea or they're breaking bones and they're having to be amputated during in the rehabilitation centers and turtles are the most incredible animals in that they just slow down i mean i know all reptiles do this but they just slow down if they if they're not happy they never die it's amazing so when you get the 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 uv and the temperature and the feeding and everything right they will fix themselves it's just amazing ability to fix themselves and to go off and they've they know that turtles with two flippers three flippers are fine two flippers are fine as well except if those two flippers are on the same side then they have a bit of an issue with swimming and coming up for air and, and diving and things and the ones that they're coming in tend to be the young females. And I think that there's a huge amount that we don't know when we send them back into sea because um, satellite tagging is so expensive, like a thousand pounds for a tag. And then you pay 500 pounds a month just to read the data. Uh, absurdly expensive that uh, we don't know how well these turtles do after rehabilitation, but they are the breeding females. You know, in the Mediterranean, there could be a whole generation of breeding females that have got uh, injuries from entanglements or, or propellers. So that one could be very important. Has COVID had a impact on the work that your charity is doing? Initially, no, because the way that we support the conservation organisations, the way the vets support them, is through going to visit, do a, do a field visit for a week or so every year, 12 to 18 months. And in between that, they will help them remotely. So answering questions and saying, you know, look at this x-ray, what do you think of that? Or these results have come up, what do you think of that? And they'll provide them that support. So initially it was fine, it was business as usual, but we really noticed that after sort of 18 months that the relationships begin to get a bit strained and they don't work as well that you need to have so this must be a human thing rather than a 
our organization thing you they need you need to go back and see the officials and go and have tea with the head of the forestry department in order to get your permits and go and visit various people and take part in the conversations within the conservation organizations about planning moving forward and several projects have faltered because there's that lack of continuity and when COVID happened you know such a huge amount happened in our lives that people moved on very very quickly and what was established before COVID wasn't relevant anymore in some cases but also the people the personnel will have changed and that really has put a big impact on it and then there's a, the fundraising side obviously. Do you think you'll get back on track easily or is it put some of the projects back irreversibly or just put them just slow them down a little bit? Some of them it has improved because they've been able to really look at um, and have the time to really look at what they are doing and why they're doing it and is this the best way of doing it. Other aspects have been delayed and were on the edge of maybe not being able to be done because of permits not being issued or permits not being valid anymore. They look like they will go ahead but in a different a slightly different way and probably a better way in hindsight but yes a lot of stress and pain and because fundraising to send somebody out to go and have meetings which is really really important part of the whole thing is really hard it's really hard to find those kinds of funds or for people to agree that that's really important where it's actually the basis that partnership is the basis of what of for success it really is and we've really really learned that in the last two years can people specify what project they donate to or is it go into one big pot and gets shared out they are they're able to specify by writing in the, in the there's a notes field there on the donation side we would really like you not to do that because then we we are much more flexible with who we can support and we can support people much much more quickly so if we get a new project that comes in and they want three grand to buy a piece of equipment or they just need they need a vet to come out to help them with a particular issue and get them on the right track um, we can do that much more quickly if we have unspecified funds. I don't get the opportunity to talk about um, wildlife medicine in the bigger picture very often. So it's really, I've really enjoyed talking about it and bringing all the different projects in and the different aspects of it. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic and very educational and enlightening. I, I, I've, I've enjoyed hearing about all the different bits and, and it's really nice that it's not just the, like you say, the big the big sexy animals that everyone wants to know about, you know, the tigers and the, and the leopards and stuff and rhinos. And it is actually important for the other stuff, you know, for the, the animals that don't get the publicity. It's really important to know that those animals are, have also got people watching their back yeah. and, and saving them, really. Fantastic work you're doing. Well, if I can help in any way, let me know. But I don't know much about tigers, I'm afraid, <laughs> sadly. You don't need to. I, what is What I love is working in a, in a field where, I mean, the, the subject matter is really, really interesting. I love the interrelatedness of it all. But I work with some amazing people, some really amazing people. And I love it. And I love what they're doing and what they're trying to do. And while I'm a conservation biologist, I'm a desk-based person. I sit in the UK, really boring. But I love being able to talk to these people by email and zoom regularly and sort of be part of that world 
And when we get people who give us a donation and go, we really like the way you're doing it, your work you're doing, and thank you so much for doing it. We really appreciate it. I That gives me a huge buzz because it's just really nice that other people enjoy what we're doing and think it's really important and are willing enough to give us a donation to carry on. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And again, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to what you've got to say. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's brilliant. And I feel very privileged. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do want to get in touch with me, then you can simply email me on theunderdogvetpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Instagram, where you'll find me as, yes, the Underdog Vet Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe via your favourite platform. And please note that the Underdog Vet Podcast is entirely independent. It's just me, Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, speaking as an individual. No affiliations with any organisations, charity or businesses are made or implied unless I specifically mention it.